Hi, this is Russell. Welcome to A Life in Music, the podcast dedicated to performers who want to be their very best. I've spent my life working in an industry I love, professionally since the age of eight years old. I love what I do, and I'm still as passionate today as I have ever been. This industry is full of ups and downs, but it's still a wonderful industry, and A Life in Music is here to support performers with interviews from creatives to artists, behind-the-scenes insights, tips and tricks, and as much support as I can give to help you become the very best you can be. Now I've something to ask you. There are three ways in which you can help me reach more people. This not only benefits others, but also gives me the opportunity of getting great content to you. The more listeners I have, the more weight this platform has, and this in turn gives me my opportunities of getting even more great interviews and great content to you. Now, firstly, please go to my website at www.alifeinmusic.com and sign up to the newsletter. This means you'll be the first to hear about new content on the site and new podcasts as they become available. There's also some exclusive benefits that come from time to time. Secondly, please review the podcast. This is incredibly important to me. It takes a couple of minutes and if you go onto the website you'll find some very simple instructions. Please leave me a great review. This is the best opportunity for me to get further exposure from iTunes. And thirdly, just spread the word. Tell people about the podcast and the website and get them to have a listen. And finally, thank you so much for listening and thank you for your support. We have listeners from all over the world. This podcast is for you and I do it for no monetary benefit whatsoever. This is my way of sharing my experiences and wisdom from a life in music. And now on to today's show. And welcome to another episode of A Life in Music with Russell Scott. On this cold, on this freezing cold December morning, we've just had our first huge dumping of snow. And here I am in my lovely, warm, oh, cosy studio in North London. Well, about a week or so ago, I had the pleasure of interviewing up-and-coming producer Katie Lipson. She's had a series of creative and commercial successes, ups and downs of producing musicals. She's a great believer in new musicals and in British writing, and I'm really thrilled to have her on today's show, talking about all things to do with producing musicals, what it takes, what gets through those difficult times, what she does when she's really elated with the amazing productions that she's producing and the casts and crew around her. This is my interview with Katie Lipson. Good morning, Katie. Hello, Russell. How are you? Yeah, really good, thank you. Where, where are you? Are you, in, are you in London? Are you in Manchester? Where are you at the moment? I'm in London, just sat in my home office talking to you. Um, just come back from Manchester, a couple of days there, starting to spend quite a bit more time in Manchester recently. Yeah, yeah. lots going on at Hope Mill. Yeah, it's a really exciting venture and it's building steam. And uh, we've currently got Little Women on, which is the European premiere and people are loving it. And so we're thrilled with that response. And now we're planning our next show in January, which we're still auditioning for, The Toy Boy Diaries, a new British musical. Um, so yeah, all very buzzy and exciting. 
you're you're very very much an advocate of uh, bringing bringing new shows, new music, British music to uh, to the forefront, aren't you? Yeah, any musical theatre. I mean, I, I'd like to think that when you think of Aria, most of our shows are world premieres, UK premieres, or European premieres because you know producing something for the first time it's like nothing else or producing a musical in the in the UK for the first time you know it, it gives you something something exciting to work on and it gives you a, a unique sort of artistic um, policy really as well and you know I, I am a musical person and I'm drawn to music and therefore I crave originality when I choose what to produce yeah, and I think that's I think that's a great thing, and it's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today, really, is because we've known each other for some time. We've never never yet had the pleasure of working together, but I, I hope that might change in the future. But 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 what I what I love about you is your your passion, your versatility, and your your real creative instinct. It's not just a business to you where you're sort of just throwing out loads of stuff, no matter what it is. You you clearly have a great passion for it, and that's something that's that I I'm a great believer in. If you if you believe in something, you should you should always follow it. Yeah. Tell me how this all, all began. What what made you start producing? Tell me a little bit about your your background first of all, so so we can all sort of understand. Yeah. Well, I came to London at 18 to study at UCL and funnily enough, I was studying genetics of all things. I kind of liked science at school, never really knew what I wanted to do or didn't think I wanted to be in the creative industry. Um, but I did sort of get drawn to a group of people that were very creative at the university and we actually started writing, it was one particular person, we started writing our own little opera, um, opera musical, you know, when we were 19 and through that process, um, we decided to put that show on. So at the age of 19 or 20, we'd written a musical, we put it on. I actually musically directed it as well. So I was at the piano, casting the singers, teaching the singers. We then decided to form a small company that was devoted to, to new musical theatre. And that was called A Stage Kindly and sort of um, produced musical reviews and new musical showcases for around three years, three to four years. And it was after that, that I suddenly became extremely interested in producing. I wanted to start to produce other people's musicals as well as just, you know, like revivals as well as original work. And I wanted to look at the commercial model rather than just the off West End concert model. And a few things happened. I discovered what commercial producing meant. I went on a producing course, learned a lot about it, became very ambitious very quickly. And then for the next three years, basically started Aria Entertainment and, uh, started to produce these sorts of shows in this sort of volume um, and then recently took the next step into producing you know commercially on the UK touring circuit and in London um, so yeah I mean <laughs> it's a it, was, it feels like a long path the last 10 years but ultimately um, I wouldn't change anything that I've been through and what I've learned to sort of get here and uh, the experiences I've had at the start at the start did you always have that dream that you thought I want to be the next Cameron or absolutely not you know I didn't I didn't have that those aspirations I was so immersed in the creativity because I was musically directing all these shows that I was fulfilled in the moment of what they did so I was not thinking of it at all as a business um to actually survive in those early years in my 20s I was working you know, as a freelance MD, as an actor, and mostly as a voice coach and repertoire teacher at schools such as the Brit School and London Theatre School and Trinity and Central, where I used to do, you know, panel work. So 
no, that ambition wasn't there then. I didn't really look at commercial producers and think, wow, to find the next Les Mis, Wicked, Hamilton, you know, even though Hamilton wasn't around then. I just sat, you know, MDing these shows and discovering this work and, and just wanting to do my best in that world. But I did get ridiculously ambitious, sort of, like I said, as soon as Aria became a thing, that company sort of um, closed. Aria was my company on my own. And then I started to really take it a lot more seriously. I suddenly had this light bulb moment and decided to leave all of those other things, the acting, the MDing, the teaching, and just think producing is it. That is what I want to do. How am I going to get there? And that was then the next step. You know, building area. Have you have you had to get a lot of support, a lot of help from, you know, collaborators, uh, or have you have you mainly sort of stuck to your sort of guns and just said, "I'm going to do this. This is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to I'm going to learn by mistakes. I'm going to lead by example. This is this is how I'm going to do it." I've totally done both of those things. Definitely um, self motivated. Every project is pretty much been generated by me. Um, I've come up with an idea. I've launched into it. I've always got good people around me who have come in as a co-producer, have brought some finance to the table to split the risk with me. Um, but ultimately, I didn't really have the right mentor when I was younger. I didn't have anybody I could aspire to be like because actually this is a new wave of producer. I think there's a lot of young producers that have sort of paved the way through the off-west STEM world into the commercial, which I think is kind of quite a new thing. Um, a lot of the more experienced producers either started as an assistant for a bigger producer or were a stage manager, or but they sort of seem to enter the commercial after maybe the non-for-profit sector. But I don't know whether they actually cut their teeth as much on the fringe as much as, say, some of us have in the last five years. So... You know, I learned from by my own mistakes and I learned from doing and I learned, you know, I would launch into projects knowing perhaps there was limited commercial appeal, but being completely driven and committed to putting this project on stage. And so I would do it. <laughs> <laughs> no matter whether there was 10 people in the audience or 500 people in the audience. Absolutely. And that's our job. You know, if a piece has artistic merit, it's our job to come up with the financial model and the right setting. So even if it might run for five weeks to 50 people, and I think it's of worth, then I will have to work on that model as much as I'm currently trying to develop musicals that I hope might run for 25 years to, you know, to a thousand people. Um, but you can never predict these things. You have to go with the work you believe in and decide what it is that actually gets you up in the morning and makes you excited to, to get up and work on it. I've never, I've never, never spoken to a Katie Lipson that's not excited about producing and about creating. That's good, that's good. <laughs> well, let's go all the way back. So tell me a little bit about your background as a child, how you got into music, how you got into, into, the, into this, this life. Music and theatre were always a huge part of my family life. Um, although my parents aren't really in the industry, there's a huge love of musical theatre from my grandparents to my parents. So the house had a piano in my mother played by ear she, I used to be in awe of how she played when I was five and then obviously I you know became better than her which I never thought I would but um you do when you train and learn it so you know I played the piano learned the guitar learned the cello went to singing lessons was in amateur dramatics went to the theatre once a month everything in the car was an Angeloid Webber mixtape or a Rogers and Hammerstein mixtape um my grandparents would record everything on the telly that had music in so 
from very young, my mother knew that I was really quite obsessed with with um, musical theatre. You know, I used to go to a show and cry when it had finished and say again, you know, when this is when I was obviously very young. Um, I could sing. So I think that, you know, the obvious thing you do is you, you're in a show, you're in the school play. So I was performing, but it wasn't quite what I really wanted to pursue. Um, my father was a businessman, so... I'd always seen that side of someone that ran their own business and I always found it quite fascinating and inspiring. And I was always very into business and very um, independent and liked the idea of running my own company. Um, so that's kind of why theatre and music are such a huge part of my life. And it was all, you know, classical music as well and all genres of music brought me to theatre and then you know musicals expanded my knowledge of what other theatre could be and that's when I started to go and see everything from plays to opera to physical theatre to devise stuff to comedy um and then you know I, I thought that I'd go and be a geneticist which was crazy but at 18 that's what I wanted to do you know I couldn't I can't really change that and it was the right path because had I not come to London I might have never met um, my friends at UCL who inspired me to start producing so <laughs> it's all a, a circle really. you never quite know what's going to lead to the next big opportunity you, exactly you, know, you could be doing something totally disconnected from what you're currently doing and that would then open the door to do something else and you just never quite know what's around the corner and that's what I think is one of the most exciting things about being a, a creative yeah and that's why I say when I'm doing sort of when I used to teach, um, you know, grad, you know, graduates, and or I used to do a lecture, I'd say make sure you take every opportunity that comes to you, every meeting, every audition, because you never know when it might lead to something else. A casting director thinks you're right for another project, or a chance encounter with a producer opens up a door for a co-production, or you meet someone that could be an investor, or anything. It's all about personal connections, following those ones up creating a database of contacts because it's all about who you know as well and you know you, I can't develop a new musical and give it a path unless I'm speaking to a regional theatre who need to know that it might be coming up in two three years time I need to plant that seed now you know it's it's that's what you learn fast about about it about always reaching ahead of time with a project you've got because things are, are done so far in advance in this business it's, very, it's terribly cliched to, to, to say, to make the most of every opportunity. We all say it. Everybody says it all the time. We make the most of every opportunity. But it really is true. It really is absolutely essential to, and you, you know, we all make mistakes as we go on when we're growing up through our, you know, teens and twenties and, and beyond. We're still all making mistakes, but we learn from them. And, and you learn how to really, I suppose, model create this model of where where you want to go and how you want to do it and then it's tweaking along the way and I think I think we, we as I said we we, we all, it, it's very much a cliche or you know you say to young people or people getting into the industry make the most of every opportunity to do this and they say yeah 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 you know and they don't quite believe it they think you're just sort of pushing them aside but actually to this day I think I still have to, I still look at every single person I talk to as a potential opportunity going forward. You never quite know when at some point your paths may cross again and you might want to work with them or there might be an opportunity there. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And, you know, looking at creatives and producers and actors and bearing in mind that 
our paths will cross again. Some of us will become very successful, others might not. But, you know, at the end of the day, you should be great to everybody you work with because you never know where you might want to work with them or for them again. Um, and that's another thing. Always do your best on a project as a producer, as an actor, as a creative, because, you know, once that project's finished, you you know, that there might be another opportunity to work with that team again and you want to make sure that, they want to work to get you with you, you know. Um, so it is a small world and there are certain, you know, it's a good thing to work with a team that work for you. And it's a good thing to try working with new people. It's all good because um, when, when something works, you want to work with that team again. But it's really important to always bring fresh talent into your mix as well. I love giving people opportunities. We've, we've used maybe 35, 40 directors over five years. Usually that volume is due to our festival of new musicals where we get to work with eight creatives and it's my chance to sort of give a rehearsed reading to a director that I've been watching and that I think has got a lot of talent just to see how they are with people because it's not all about vision, it's about how people work as a team and you like to observe that before launching into a bigger project. So it gives us a great opportunity to work with new people and I love that. What was, what was your, what would you say has been your biggest risk to date? When, you, when you've looked at a project, you're starting a project, if you now look back and you think, oh my goodness, that was such a huge risk, and it may have paid off or made not, but what, what, what's the sort of biggest risk? How scary was that time? I guess bringing hair to the vaults where it is now was quite a big risk. You know, the vaults isn't necessarily, I don't know, a destination venue for musical theatre. It's not, oh my gosh, but, you know, I just had a sense that hair as the title would be the driving force, and it is bringing audiences in and it is been an extremely ambitious project. We're building a theatre in an arch. You've got the complications of that. Um, and then we've got this other arch next to it. And it was a very expensive show and we're running it for 16 weeks, which is a very long off West End show. Um, that's a big risk. But, you know, I don't know. I tend to not. You can't be fearful, really. You wouldn't, you wouldn't do it. If you actually look at the numbers or you look at what you're doing, and you actually analyse it, you would actually probably run away from from your job as a producer. If you, do. you know, some nights when I was raising money for the Adams family, I would go to bed and think, oh gosh, what happens if that investment doesn't come in? Oh gosh. But I would try not to dwell on it because, you know. <laughs> but everything's got a risk. That's the thing. If we all knew something was less risky or not, we, you know, you would never pursue anything. I think the biggest thing is, you know, I've worked as hard on my shows this year, maybe a bit harder because I've done a lot, but I haven't really worked any that much harder than when I did eight projects off West End in 2015. I've worked just as hard. It's just that these shows have been bigger budgets and, and there's been more money to raise, but they've had more rewards for me. So there's that, okay, this is actually a business now, not just a project to experience and love. So that, that's the difference, you know, how do you make this job a business? How do you survive whether the show is financially successful or not? Because it is a job at the end of the day and a producer needs to be able to survive through a show, um, you know, because they're working on it like anybody else. And you're always the last person to be paid, obviously, because you've got obligations. So I think it has been a risk. Um, you know, Yank was a risk. That was a real risk. We took a new musical from Hope Mill. We had no track record to Charing Cross Theatre. And I was very proud of the results because, you know, it, to, to do the business we did, whether it 
made all its money back or not is another question was a really ambitious and brave thing to do and people were very moved by it and i'm really glad we got to bring it to london it's yeah it's it's, it's funny I, you say you you know don't worry about the numbers <laughs> but i suspect that a lot of people don't go into this don't go into this this producing world because they do worry too much about things and I kind of like, it's it's slightly arrogant, Katie, but I kind of like it. It's kind of like, I don't give a, I don't give a damn. I'm just going to do what my heart says and I'm just going to go with it and do it. And I think that's yeah. really amazing. It is. Um, it's, because, it's a wonderful thing. Because if the, you know, if the numbers don't work on paper and you just, and you know, you could end up with, obviously you could end up bankrupt as, as many do. Um, but you've, you've, you know, you've obviously you've had your, you know, you've had your hits and you've had your failures as, as, as everyone. And you've had the things that just do okay. Um, but you've been, I suppose, fortunate enough to have some good ones that have made it pay. Well, the truth is the first five years, four years of ARIA wouldn't, you know, if you look at the scale of the projects, you know, shows in the other palace studio, like Marry Me A Little and Jerry's Girls, shows like, Toxic Avenger at Southwark, shows like, um, I don't know, uh, Return of the Soldier at German Street, Tommy at, at Greenwich. And none of those shows really made any money for me to survive. You know, they might have washed their face, but even if they made a profit, we're talking a few hundred pounds. The models are so small, there'll be no producer fees. I was still teaching. That's how I survived. You know, that money was the business. Those shows were me building a brand, knowing that Adam's family was coming up because, of course, I had the rights to that years before it happened. And I was like, OK, at some point, I'm going to raise a fortune here that I've never done. I need a track record. I need people to know who I am. I need people to see quality work. So whether it makes me money or not, as long as I don't lose enough that I've lost. You know, I always had a, a, a bit of money that I put in, my own money, into ARIA to fund these shows. Um, and it was always a calculated risk to do a couple at once because what was if both lost? But I always knew I'd be able to pay my bills. I always made sure I was, you know, sensible enough to know that whatever loss they made, I would always honour those losses. So ultimately, um, what, you know, the change is basically getting a brand to get titles that are able to be lifted and done in a commercial way. Because I look now through the MTI catalogue, Tams Whitmark, Samuel French, I look at the titles I want to do. I think, okay, I've done a lot of them. Which one of these would I actually, if someone gave me five million, do in the West End? And you know what? I probably don't have that many. So ultimately, I'm left with the decision of creating my own work. And that is the ultimate experience and uh, achievement. So and, and takes the most money and craft and skill. So that is what I've been building towards. Find great writers. Think about good ideas get some investors that might back those shows. And so I think that's, for me, how I see my current success point of, I probably could now find people to back an idea I've got. And that's from the track record of the shows, which didn't make me money, um, but made me an, a brand, I guess, and a name that people know is really, really quite, you know, passionate about musical theatre. And exciting. And I think, I think brand is very important. I think track record is very important. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, I think it all takes time, as you say, and that's why planning ahead is, is so important. Just talk, let's talk about casting a little bit. You, you are very passionate about working with, with new writers. Um, and, and also, you know, I, I, I know that when you're casting, you, you bring a lot of new, what I would call newbies yeah. into, uh, 
in, into the theatre. And that's probably, uh, you know, a, a little bit of a financial thing, I suspect. And because, because new people obviously are not going to cost as much as big, big superstar names. But also it's giving opportunity um, for, for new talent, which is something I'm very passionate about. Yeah, it really depends on the show. I mean, in Adam's family, we did have some some profile casting who were brilliant and, you know, just, it, you wouldn't, even if you didn't know that they, they had been on television or whatever, they were perfect for their roles anyway, um, which was great, you know, to get such talent as well um, as someone that can talk about your show on te television, which for a new musical, on tour, competing with hairsprays and wickets, it's important. So that's, you know, so for that, it had to happen. And for that, that commercial level, it's always a conversation, unfortunately, that has to happen. Um, in terms of my other shows, you know, yeah, it never really comes into my head. I always think, who's the best person for the role? But then, you know, you do mind me a little with someone like Laura Pitt Pulford, who for me is a star and was just incredible. And she, she was perfect for that. And sometime fans you know flock to see her in that with simon bailey as well um so i think that but then toxic avenger you know it's not really a star in that and yank there wasn't in hair there isn't you know it's i don't really know what what sort of star sells these sorts of shows i think the shows should be the stars so i agree yeah. with that do you do you not do you do you think that the names do pull people into shows. I mean, you only have to look at things like the Greasy Years, Sweeney Todd, and Sunset Boulevard, and Gypsy, and Follies, and all these things where you've got big names, you know, obviously, Imelda Staunton's a big pull these days, but, um, you know, do you think the stars sell the show, or do the show, does the show sell it, no matter who's in it? Depends on the show. I think, I think, it wasn't just that it was Imelda Staunton and Gypsy, she was just extraordinary. She was, just brilliant and <laughs> that part for, for a sort of golden age musical that part is so relevant and people of today still connect with that mother with that woman and the way she is as a you know so I think that's why that piece lives on you know as a piece of theatre that still connects that's a really important thing as well when you're doing a revival there's so many now that probably just wouldn't translate in this day and age they just they just don't have the protagonist that or the or the themes that people relate to I think on that commercial level so I think I think in, and it depends what country you're looking at you know look at America look at Dear Evan Hansen and Ben Platt and phenomenal role and phenomenal performance and great show a show probably now that is established enough to continue without him just as Adina Menzel created Alpha Bird and there was this big craze but ultimately the question the question is did Dear Evan Hansen become such a thing because it was coupled with him being so extraordinary in this leading role, but he became a star. He became the Evan Hansen. I think in this country, I think the only real stars that can sell a house, you know, you're talking superstars now, you're talking film stars, you're talking One Direction, Harry Styles in a musical, you know, I, I don't really think that um, a million good names sell a show. I think it packages it well and it seems legitimate and it might be a small factor, but there's a whole wave of factors why something's successful or not. And it's to do with the timing, the marketing, how, how does it reach the audience? Where is the audience's minds at this point in time? What can we take into our hearts? You know, it's all about that. What else is competition in the environment right now? So yeah, usually a star is not so much about selling tickets, but 
can they get more publicity for my show? Because do people want to hear what they have to say on a national television program? Will they talk about our show? Will they spread it among millions of listeners? You know, that is really the factor. And those people are invited onto the sofas because they're loved from whatever, you know, soap or film they were in and the public want to hear from them. And that's, and that's, is important in some way as well, you know? You're right. I think it is all about, it all, it's, it's about aiding marketing because the general public per se, if they're not in the musical theatre industry, even if you had the biggest musical theatre star, wouldn't necessarily know those people. They don't know, for example, um, uh, what's her name? <laughs> <laughs> Audra McDonald. Audra McDonald, who right, absolutely sell a Broadway house. You know, yep. they had to they closed Shuffle along when she left because she was it. You know, here she is playing the Leicester Square Theatre. Um, you know, on Broadway, stars are made stars in terms of musical theatre stars. You know, and and here not as much, which is a shame, but we are a very different beast. You know, we're very small. The way to build a brand here is very different to build word of mouth through um, the, the geography of a, of a country. It's so much smaller. Um, in America, they have this whole outer regional network of tryouts to build momentum and word of mouth for a show. Mm-hmm. So I think um, Producers have to be savvy now. We're looking at interesting spaces to produce in, site-specific spaces, you know, models where we can run our own bar and other revenue streams to make it work. Hair's only got 196 seats. You know, that is that's smaller than Southwark Playhouse. Okay, we're, we're charging somewhere between off West End and West End in terms of our prices. We have to. We've got 20 people on our payroll every week. You know, so um, it's it's all about that, being creative. And I think that's what... I've loved this year taking three off West End shows into a commercial transfer, such with Hair Toxic and Yank. And that's been quite cool, you know. Do you think these kind of, um, well, I suppose alternative um, ways of producing, and, uh, and what I mean by that is that these, these productions, I mean, I mean, the things like you, is, is the, the gimmick of it being in the vault, for example, do you think that's a seller? Do you think that really helps? Is that what it's need to? Is is that what's needed to get the edge over something in the West End? So when people have a decision to make, what do you want to see tonight? Do you think they're going to think, wow, there's that amazing production of hair I've heard about? It's in the vaults. That sounds really exciting. That's different. Or should I just go to the Lyric Theatre or wherever it might be and see something else? Do you think that that plays a part? Um. Yes, I think hair's its own beast. I think people will go and see hair if they've heard good things about it, wherever it is, because it's hair the musical. Um, for me, I didn't... For me, I wouldn't have ever brought it into the Western. I knew my options were limited, and I knew I needed something site-responsive, and I knew I needed an event space. So I didn't choose the vaults because I thought this will entice people in over the Western. I chose the vaults because I had limited options, and I knew in the vaults I could create a whole experience with a second space with that's created into like a Woodstock vibe with our own bar selling our own merchandise with lots of little teepees that people can chill in um and I thought okay we can bring some extra money in through those sales we can um make the ticket price slightly higher than off West End so we can actually bring in enough money and um and I thought that word of mouth would be strong because it was different so yes that factored in too but um I didn't really have hundreds of choices you know I, I looked at my options and I knew that there were very you know, this was the only event space in central London under an arch 
<laughs> it's true i have to say i i did notice that article in the sun newspaper just a week or two ago you did a naked performance yes well we did a naked performance for the audience they were naked not the cast uh, <laughs> <laughs> apart from the end of that one yeah i mean look we were approached by a uh a practitioner actually a theater practitioner who's incredibly um well respected in the industry who um belongs to a naturist group and had been looking for several years for a theatre or, or a producer to allow this to happen. And rejection after rejection after rejection. In the spirit of hair, how could we reject this inquiry? You know, the show is about being free, being at one with one's body, free love, you know, ban the bomb, peace. And it's the perfect musical to do this for so obviously we spoke to our company first you've got to get their respect you know it's a big thing for them it's an intimate theater they would see everything right so we had to make sure that they were comfortable when the general consensus was that they were we then explored it and we said to this practitioner you know feel free to share this with your network with the network of people that you trust that you know um are wanting to do this you know for the right reasons that they genuinely are naturist they're just free and and they want to watch a show in that way so we did the naked performance the clothing optional performance which sold out and the actor said it was the most thrilling thing they've ever done <laughs> <laughs> did they find it daunting when they when they first come out to you know on stage at the beginning of act one did they find it quite oh my goodness suddenly they're looking at an audience there there's every, everything hanging out you know yeah absolutely and i'm really proud and and um you know, proud and thankful that they took this on because we really wanted to do it, not for publicity, although that was a bonus, you know, because it was a good thing to do. How, how wonderful to offer that to people that can't actually live the way they want to see a show and the way they want to see a show. Um, it's really great. So they were daunted, I'm sure, but, you know, some of them probably more than others, you know, it was, it's all your personalities, but they all threw themselves into it and, and hopefully it was a life-changing experience. <laughs> Next thing will be Phantom of the Opera. Oh, gosh, imagine. <laughs> Just wearing masks. Imagine. There's a whole market here. I know. <laughs> do, you, do you tend to do all your own casting? Do you sit on the panel and you cast, or do you tend to bring in casting directors? I always use a casting director, but I do sit in on auditions. Um, I used to sit in on all auditions, but as I've got busier, I go to the recalls generally. Toy Boy Diaries, I went to one of the first rounds as well, but I feel very close to that project because I've literally watched the script develop. I commissioned it and everything, so I'm very close to it. And I wanted to sort of see who was coming in. So ultimately, yeah, you have different casting directors. I've worked with maybe six over the years, and they're all very different, and you have the affinities with some over others, and some are right for some projects, but um recently i've been working a lot with jane deach and i really love working with her i find her um very hard working and brings great people in the room is very astute very giving to actors you know she always gives feedback and is just really passionate about her job i like that in people do you have do you have a very much open door policy so that that you know people starting out and people wanting to get into you know off west end will, will, can get the chance and absolutely obviously there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people always applying but jane will you know go through her list she'll see people that she's seen in showcase she'll bring in hopefully the best people because the shortest casting process is the cheapest casting process um so ultimately 
Um, but you know, if someone re reaches out to me and I say, Jane, I want to see them, she's like, cool. So yeah, I mean, I don't have the time to look at CVs or go to casting showcases anymore. I want to spend my spare time reading scripts, not doing the job that someone else is doing. Um, but I will remember someone if I've seen something and they've been very good, you know, because I can't help myself but do that. But I'm not actively on the lookout for talent all the time. We're very lucky, producers. There is so much talent out there. It tends to be generally the least least of our worries sometimes. Sometimes there's the odd part. It's hard to cast, but generally you're overwhelmed with talent. You know, we're very lucky. And what's, what's, what's next for, for Katie Lipson? What's going to happen uh, in the next three years? Oh, gosh, lots, Russell. Um, no, the dream is I've had Adam's family to go to the West End. I'd like it to go, you know, to, to carry on its journey and grow and you know, we're really proud of it, really proud of this British production. I would like um, to transfer all the Hope Mill shows to some, you know, to UK tours, London transfers, you know, things like that. And, but most importantly, I have four, five projects in development that I've commissioned that I would like to see get put on, you know, in the next three years. Some of them will be on in regional theatres, hopefully transferring to the West End. And I will continue to develop new work and be a company that basically presents new musicals commercially and have self-made them. That is the dream. And, to, you know, to, for me, yes, of course, I want commercial success because ultimately that could help me continue to do the same thing. So I need these shows to, for people to respond to them, really, so that I can continue to do more. What's your, what are your sort of, what's your advice? What's your advice to people? What's your advice to people? Let's, let's, let's just look at this twofold, actually. What's your advice, first of all, to wannabe producers, people that have got this huge passion to create? What's your advice to them? Um, to get a sense of what you really want to create, what theatre you love, what theatre you, you know, that, that you, uh, and what producers you aspire to be like. You've got to get a taste, an artistic taste, and a vision for what you want to do. And you've got to identify your limitations. What is, what, is, what is it that I want and what is stopping me getting there? So for me, I'm like, I need to be able to raise a million pounds. So how am I going to do that? Okay, I need to sit and find investors. I need to build investor pools. How do I do that from producing high quality product and inviting people and getting my name out there? That was my series of you know, points. So I would say that you've got to know what you want to produce. Lots of people go, I want to be a producer, but they don't really know what project they want to do. I'm like, you should have a list of shows that you love or shows that you would do, and you should look at how you're going to do it. Um, I think it's absolutely fine to start out at the Union Theatre and the Landor and the Fimbra, and um, actually the Landor's not here anymore, but theatres like the Landor, you should cut your teeth on the fringe, you should, but you should think about why you're doing it um, and what you want to achieve by the end of it. So that's what I would say to producers. Uh, what, about, yeah. what about to actors and singers that, that are trying to pursue a career? Obviously, they're coming, you know, to, to work with someone like yourself. Um, what, what advice would you give them? Because, you, as I say, you, you get approached by hundreds of people. And I think a lot of, a lot of um, you know, actors who are starting out are a little bit scared of, one, of approaching producers and two of, they're not quite sure how to break into these kind of productions. Well, first of all, I would say to aspiring actors and creatives, know what's going on in the industry, know what's coming up, you know, spend half an hour a day making sure you've read what's on stage, the stage, and producers that you like profile and websites, what's coming up, so that when 
for example, Aria Entertainment announces they're from page to stage season, your agent is actually sending you for a rehearsed reading. And a lot of agents miss out on certain breakdowns. It's funny, you know, they apply to some things and not others. It's up to the client to really understand what is out there and what opportunities could be out there. Um, because if you don't know your business, how can you ever be the best? You can't just sit back and wait for an audition. It's the same as making sure that you're well rehearsed and well practiced with your audition songs so that you can deliver them. Because ultimately they have to come in the room and we have to go, wow, they're brilliant for the part. But in order to get in that door, the, the first thing you need to do is know what's going on. It's not just your agent's responsibility. It's absolutely yours. Just like it's not mine to sit back and just think, oh, what title should I do? Like, if I don't know that that's happening on Broadway, there's no way I can get the rights to it, then I don't, I'm wasting my time, you know? Who, 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 who's been your biggest inspiration? Um, I love a couple of producers. Obviously, um, I really like Michael Harrison. I really like the work he's doing. I really like the diversity of his musicals. I like the volume of work he does. I'm very inspired by volume, as you can tell. And producers like Michael Harrison and Sonia Freeman, the amount of properties that they've got is inspiring. You know, we are project managers. We are ultimate project managers. We're not the director who's just focused on one thing. You can run a business and have four or five shows because once you've got a machine running them, you've got good people in place, you ultimately can do more. So, I like producers that are making theatre, so are like creating new work and are musical theatre driven as well. So that's, they're the UK producers. I'm really impressed with Jamie Wilson. He's really doing great work, doing revivals in new and interesting ways, acting musician, and doing new musicals like Nativity and Officer and a Gentleman. And then out of the UK, obviously there's a, a, a ton of American producers I love because all they do is put out new musicals. You know, David Stone, Jeffrey Seller, Kevin McCollum, um, you know, Joey Parnes. These people are behind four or five hit musicals of the last 20 years. And you're like, wow, you know, Cameron McIntosh is seen, seen as the biggest because his brands are the biggest. But the volume of how many shows these other guys have done is, is so inspiring. Yeah, it's 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 such a pleasure to talk to somebody that is is so passionate about what they do. It's something that. You know, I, I, I love doing what I do. I don't see I don't see my work as work as a job. I see it as a passion. It's it's in me. It's what I love to do. I don't think I'm going to a job not this time to this time. I just yeah. I, I do it because it's part of my own self. You know, it's part of me. It's what I do. And I think you're very much like that. And I I I, I, I love that about you, Katie. And I, I think that I think that, you know, I, I wish you such huge success. And I, I've, I, I watch things that you do. I watch, watch what's going on behind the scenes. And I, I watch with great interest because I really, really hope you make it absolutely huge in the West End and aspire those, to those dreams. Yeah, thank you. I mean, you know, the destination, although West End Broadway generally reaps, if something's long lasting, financial benefits. Again, it, that's not necessarily what I think about... Um, when I'm creating these shows, I just want them to have a long future. And that can be in many ways, as long as they have a, a return so I can reinvest money in other people as well. You know, I really want to, when I'm a bit older and hopefully successful, invest in young producers. I really want to find a way to support it because I know that it's such a block for young people to go, well, where do I get 5,000 pounds from? You know, and that everyone needs to start somewhere. So it's very important, you know, without stage one, um, charity you know a lot of producers wouldn't 
wouldn't have a start. You know, it's a wonderful thing we have in this country, um, an investment network for young producers. Really, really good. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you very much for your time today. I know you're very busy. Thank lots of productions, you. lots of things going on. And uh, I wish you all the very best of success and everything. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, that's it for today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Don't forget to check out the website at www.alifeinmusic.com. Subscribe to the podcast and please continue to spread the word. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, be your very best. Thank you.